Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Matthew 16. Have you ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Some of you may have. Some of you may have heard me mention it before in Sunday school settings or other places. But the Jesus Seminar was a group of supposed, and I say supposed, theologians who were nothing more than liberal heretics. But they were a group that got together in a seminar, thus the Jesus Seminar, to discover, according to them, the historic Jesus. They wanted to know who Jesus really was. So they wanted to get to the historic Jesus. I suppose that that to them would have been the real Jesus, as opposed to the Jesus, let's say, that you and I believe. They wanted to find the real, the historic Jesus. And so what they did was they took uh, their New Testaments, the Gospels, and they went through the New Testament Gospels. And they would read a portion of Scripture. And from that portion of Scripture, they would take a vote on whether it really happened or whether it is really relevant to who the historical Jesus really was. And what they did was they had colored beads. And I really don't remember the colors, but there were three or four different colors. And if I think if you put in black, had nothing to do with the historical Jesus. We don't believe this part of the Bible. It can't be real. So they would get a they they would they would discard that. That's if you voted with a black bead. Now, your neighbor in the seminar, he might have voted with, let's say, a yellow bead or maybe a blue bead or a white bead. And each one of those beads had varying degrees of whether it was authentic and whether it really showed who Jesus actually was as the historic Jesus. And here's what they came up with. When they talked about Jesus, they became convinced that Jesus was a Hellenistic Jewish sage. You know what that means? Somebody who, who espoused wisdom. He was a Hellenistic Jewish sage. And he was a faith healer who preached, and I say that in quotes, but according to them, who preached of liberation from injustice the injustice of the world, the injustice of the Romans, but he preached liberation from injustice using parables and stories. Really? He was not the divine Son of God. They did not believe in any of the miracles that he did, and certainly he was not raised from the dead on the third day. That would be impossible. Men don't raise from the dead. So that's what the Jesus Seminar believed about Jesus. Now you've all heard of the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know what they say about Jesus? You know what Mormons teach about Jesus? Mormons are real big today, you know that? Mormons are supposed to be Christians now. Uh, I read some blogs last evening yesterday. 
saying that what I'm going to say to you is hateful and mean. How dare you have to talk about things like that in church? We talk about love. Well, I want you to know the truth. So I'm going to tell you what Mormons believe about Jesus. According to them, they believe that God the Father was a literal man who literally lived upon the literal earth. God the Father was a man who lived upon the earth until he achieved godhood. After he achieved godhood, he went up into space. Now, according to Mormons, God the Father, while here on earth, had a wife or wives and children. The first child was Jesus. Jesus was the son of the literal God, the Father, on earth. And Jesus was born to the Father while he was still on earth. And then I guess even after a while, he achieved Godhood and left and then, of course, came back. But they say that Jesus was literally the son of the Father. They deny the virgin birth. They deny it. But since all people are then descended from God, because Jesus was his first son, but so is everybody else. We're all descended from God the Father before he left earth. We're all brothers of Jesus. He is our older brother. Oh, by the way, uh, Satan was also Jesus' brother. So God had Jesus and Satan. They were brothers. Jesus was the good brother. And Satan was, of course, the bad brother. Now, following his resurrection from the dead in Palestine, Jesus went over to the Western Hemisphere. He appeared over in the Western Hemisphere. Now, follow with me. He dies and he's buried on a cross in, outside of Jerusalem. And after his resurrection, he goes and appears over in, really, South America. And he there picks 12 new apostles and organizes a religion among the American Indians. That's when he made those plates that were somehow taken from South America or Central America or Mexico and transported to Joseph Smith's house in upstate New York where they were secretly buried there where he could find them. But anyway, Mormons do not believe in the divinity of Christ, at least not in the way that you and I see it from the Bible, as him being the divine Son of God. Only God the Father was God. Jesus was a God, one of many. But they don't believe in the divinity of Christ. Do you know what Muslims believe about Christ. Muslims say that Christ was a prophet, a good man. They teach that uh, all truth came from the prophets, and he was one of the prophets. Now, he wasn't as good as Muhammad, but he was a good prophet. That's what Muslims would teach about Jesus, that he was a prophet. Now, do you know what Jews believe about Jesus. The Jews, if you know your Bible, believe that Jesus was a 
criminal. He was a criminal worthy of death. And they've never changed that. They've never said he's anything other. According to Judaism, Jesus is a criminal worthy of death, although some claim he was a good man. Well, how could he be a criminal worthy of death and still be a good man? But that's what the Jewish people say. They completely deny that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. So even though God used the Jews to be the line through which he would bring the Messiah, the Jews ultimately reject Christ, reject him as the Messiah, reject that he was the fulfillment of those prophecies given in the scriptures. They do not believe that he was divine, even though, as we are seeing, Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies from those Jewish prophets. But here's my question to you. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 16. Look at verse 15, and this is my question to you, as it was the question of Jesus to his disciples. Verse 16, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's what the Jesus seminar said. That's what the Mormons believe. That's what the Islamic faith believes. That's what Jews believe. What do you believe? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus in your eyes? This is the question of the ages that has baffled men that has caused such ridiculous seminars as the one I mentioned. It's divided men. It's divided denominations. It's divided families. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It divides people today, I say, even as we have mentioned already, that there are some people who are already watching their televisions Oh, I can't wait. Football, football, it's finally back. People are already tailgating, no doubt, in Tampa. Ready for football, football. But where are you? You're here worshiping God. Who is Jesus to them? Certainly inconsequential. Certainly inconsequential. Certainly no one of any consequence. Because football is of more consequence than Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is an important question that needs to be answered. It is vital to our understanding, even in our current study of forgiving sins. As we mentioned last Lord's Day, as we think about the fundamentals of forgiveness... We made the point that sin, under the whole matter of the essence of forgiveness, that sin is sin against a holy God. Sin is sin against God. Therefore, only God can forgive sins. And yet we find Jesus telling men and women, your sins are forgiven. What gave him the right to say that? That's what we're looking at now 
under the next major heading, the existence of forgiveness. Having already seen God's alacrity to forgive sins, his willingness to forgive our sins, last week we began to consider Christ's authority to forgive sins. What gave him the right to say your sins are forgiven since only God can? The fact that he is God. And so we're doing a study on the divinity of Christ. And last Lord's Day, we began with the fact from Scripture that as Messiah, He was promised to be God. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 7, even though it's not yet Christmas. We looked at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 that teaches that a son will be given, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that which means God with us, we found in Matthew chapter 1, in the fulfillment of this. So a virgin will conceive, she will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. And we saw Yahshua, Jesus, is indeed God with us to save. And so that's what we saw last Lord's Day as fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. But I invite you to please turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 9, which was our last stop, last Lord's Day. Isaiah chapter 9, where we saw not only was Christ or the Messiah promised to be a son who would be God with us and God among us, we saw secondly that the Messiah was to be, verse 6 of chapter 9, mighty God. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. We made the point last Lord's Day that that would be a powerful statement to any Jew, that this Messiah, this coming Messiah, was to be Mighty, Powerful God, the God who did mighty deeds among all the nation of Israel, the greatest of which was creation but also all the other things that God did in delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians, parting the Red Sea, providing for them, winning great battles and victories for them. God, mighty God, did these. And here the text tells us that the Messiah would be mighty God. And we looked into the New Testament and saw several passages from the Gospel, particularly from the Gospel of John where Jesus is shown to be mighty God, the great I Am among men. But today I want to pick up here and look at another item, another part of who the Messiah would be from this text. It says that He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and look at this, Eternal Father. The Messiah, the promised Messiah, was to be, according to this text in Isaiah, eternal Father. In other words, He would be everlasting God. Everlasting God. Now, this is not saying that the Christ or the Messiah would be the Father. Only the Father is the Father. Now, I cannot take too much time to deal with the whole matter of the Trinity. 
But we say this often, and I will say it again. These cults that I mentioned to you a few moments ago, none of them believe that Jesus is divine, and none of them believe in the Trinity. And they would say, oh, the Trinity, it's never, the word is not in the Bible. It's never mentioned in the Bible. And yet we say that that is just not true. Yes, God is one God. He declares himself to be so. There is one God, Jehovah God. And yet this one God declares himself to be three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Now, this is not a study on the Trinity, but you're going to see it. You're going to see the Trinity in this study. In fact, we're going to turn to a passage in a few moments, and we're going to see the Trinity there in the text. And as we say often in our study recently in the covenants, God continues to reveal himself more fully and more fully throughout time. As he revealed himself more fully in his son, Jesus Christ, we understand more about God than anyone in the Old Testament did. This was a promise of the Messiah. He's going to be mighty God, eternal father. And they go, how could that be? How could that be? He's going to be a man. He's going to be God with us. He's going to be mighty God, eternal Father. How can that be? We cannot explain it. We cannot understand it. But that is the way that God reveals himself. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The persons are distinct. And that's why we say that Christ the Messiah is not going to be the Father, but the language is that he will be as the Father eternal eternal. And so we're looking at the eternality of Christ. The Messiah will be eternal even as the Father was eternal. He will be one who had been with the Father from all eternity. In other words, he existed with the Father before all things. And so even though to some the Trinity is a perhaps new concept, only given in the New Testament, it's not true. It is a concept that is true about God from all eternity. Before the world was created, there was God, who was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternal God, eternal Son, eternal Holy Spirit. One God, three persons from all eternity. Eternity. The Trinity has always been the Trinity. God has always been who He is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity did not begin, and Christ did not begin after the Father. The Messiah did not begin on earth through the birth of the Virgin Mary. He had been in existence long before his incarnation. Jesus did not begin with the birth with Mary, the virgin. And he certainly didn't begin the way the Mormons said. A ridiculous notion about God actually being his physical father on earth. No, 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 no. Jesus existed with the father from before all 
time. There was never a time when the Trinity did not exist. There was never a time when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did not exist. Now, I say this again. We have very finite understanding of these things. But God's understanding is infinite. I cannot explain this to you. I cannot tell you how it is that, first of all, someone can exist from all eternity. Wait a minute. Didn't it have to be sometime when he started? No. I cannot explain that. Because we do not think in those terms. We think in terms of time and space and we're here and we're getting older and, you know, things change and things happen. But, but there was a time when I didn't exist and there was a time when my children didn't exist. And we, we're used to thinking in this capacity, but not God. God is eternal. And the text is telling us that Christ is eternal. The Messiah will be eternal. That's what the text is telling. He did not begin when he was born to Mary. He's been around from all eternity, which tells us that the Messiah would be equal to eternal, mighty God. That's what this text is saying. The Messiah would be equal to eternal, mighty God. Now, once again, you have to understand what a Jewish person would have thought about this prophecy regarding the Messiah. You're telling me that a man is going to come who is eternal God? How can that be? Because they knew the scriptures and they would be puzzled perhaps by it, but also on the other hand, excited and looking forward to it. This would be God among men. But I want to ask you to turn with me, if you would please, in your Bibles to the very beginning of your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. As we see that only God, only God is eternal. There was no one, there was nothing before God. There was nothing when God created everything. There was nothing except God. And he created everything. In the beginning, verse 1, book 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything. Just leave your finger there and look over to Exodus 20. You recognize your Bibles, you know immediately that's in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. Speaking about the fourth commandment, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. By the way, there's a lot of people who say that, well, this commandment's done away with. We don't have to worry about this commandment. That's just like this Jesus seminar. They could pick and choose what parts of the Bible they like. This one's done away with. No, it isn't. It's changed to the first day, but it's still a day of worship. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it, you should not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. 
Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested. He created everything in six days. Does a little bit of a job on uh, theistic evolution. (laughs) Six days he created everything. But the point that we make from that verse is that all that is in them. All that's on the earth, all that's in the sea, everything that exists. Back to Genesis 1.1 was created by God. God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1 again. And here's where I want you to read the next verse and see part of the Trinity. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the what? Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Sort of like a hen brooding over an egg. That's kind of the language that's being used there. But the one that is doing it is the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. The Spirit of God was moving over the waters. Now, if you would please look down a few more verses to verse 26. And I ask you this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Who is he talking to? Let us make man in our image. Oh, he's talking to the angels. No, he wasn't. The angels are not created in the image of God. Only man is created in the image of God. So he says, let us make man in our image. This is the Trinity if I can even say it reverently and correctly, the Trinity speaking among themselves. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. You see, the Trinity was there right from the beginning. So all of the Jews would have known that before God, there was absolutely nothing. He created it all. All, as we say, ex nihilo. Now, not every step of creation was out of nothing. Some was from what he did already create. But creation itself, all of creation, was ex nihilo, out of nothing. In other words, there was no dust before God created dust. There was no molecules before God created molecules. There was no little tiny mass that exploded in a big bang before God created everything. There was nothing. God created everything from nothing. Do you know how you can tell that God created everything from nothing? You can tell because you're here. You can tell because you exist. Because prior to creation, nothing existed. 
And since God created, you are part of His creation and you are here. Therefore, you are living testimony to the reality of God and His power to create. Because before God, there was nothing. You know, this is how important creation is. And this is why it's constantly attacked by unbelievers who came out this week with their uh, bones that they found that are, I don't remember, I didn't really catch. Did they say they were like millions of years old? And they said they'll have to rewrite all of the history books now because they found these bones. And I made the comment that the guy that they made looks like somebody I went to high school with. Just, you know, it was a man. You mean to tell me that somehow bones could have been in a cave millions of years and not just turned to dust? I, I, I don't understand how people can be so foolish. But yet their reasoning is and their attempt is to undermine God as creator. God created that man. God created every man in his image. And what we're seeing then is only God existed before creation. Only God is eternal. And the Messiah was prophesied to be eternal God. So when Isaiah chapter 9 says that he will be eternal God, what he is saying is that he will have existed prior to all creation, prior to anything as eternal God. Now, I ask you, do we see this anywhere fulfilled in Scripture or Anywhere. I mean, do we see it anywhere? Yes, we do. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Now, I know we looked at this text last Lord's Day in connection with him being the creator. And I didn't want to blur the lines last week because we mentioned that this was part of mighty God. Mighty God was indeed creator God. But here I want for us to see the similarity and the connection between Genesis 1.1, where it says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then, verse 3, And all things came into being through Him. Whoever this Word was, He was with God even prior to creation, which means he's eternal. But only God can be eternal. So John is going out of his way to stress that in the beginning, prior even to creation, the Word was with God. The Word was with God. And who is this Word? Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. He's talking, of course, about Jesus. Jesus is the word who was with God from the beginning. And then 
was with God in creation. So he is eternal. Jesus is eternal God. This really, again, pictures for us what was prophesied in Isaiah both 7 and 9. That there would be a son who would be born to a virgin. That son would be God with us. He would be mighty God, powerful in every way as God, even in creation. And not only that, he would be eternal. Eternal God. Now this is clear from the text and shows us that the Scripture is cohesive. The Scripture is unified. The Scripture leaves nothing out, leaves nothing not explained. Isaiah prophesied that he would be mighty God. Isaiah prophesied that he would be the eternal God. And here we find both of those in John 1.1. Eternal with the God from before creation and powerful, mighty God as he was indeed the one who was part of creation. Now that's why I wanted you to see Genesis chapter 1 to make sure that we have the connection, the cohesiveness of the scriptures. I think it's just great encouragement for you and for me to see what was prophesied hundreds of years before coming to pass just as God said it would in the fulfillment of Christ Jesus being born as the Messiah. Now I want to turn to see his eternality, in other words, the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah as given to us in just two other passages by the Apostle Paul. The first one I invite you to turn to is found in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. As we See a little further that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. Philippians chapter 2. This is a very common, well-known passage of Scripture. And we really see in this a great uh, insight to the incarnation of the Messiah. Philippians chapter 2. Look down to verse 6. Well, we'll look at verse 5. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But we want to focus in on what he says, who, although he existed in the form of God. This is indeed speaking of his eternality. It's the same as saying, Who was eternal God? Then he says that he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God. Do you see that he speaks of equality? He was equal to God. This is a powerful statement. I know it comes in the humility of Christ. I know it comes really in saying that he came as a man. We'll we'll touch on that in a moment. But to say that he was equal to God How do these cults miss this? How do people say that Jesus was not divine? Not only do we have all of his own statements, which we'll get to some of next week, but how do they miss the fact 
that Jesus is here spoken of as equal with God. He was in the form of God. He was equal with God. This is a powerful statement. It is saying that he existed in the same essence and glory with the Father from all eternity. That's strong. Existed in the same essence and glory with the Father from all eternity. I cannot turn to this verse without thinking of that. That here's Jesus in glory with God the Father who is God. And he left that even as the text goes on to say and came and dwelt with man. Verse 7. He left that glory. It says he did not regard this. I, I just want, let me just mention that for a moment before we look at verse 7. He says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know what he's saying there? What he's saying is that it's, it's a display of his humility. He's, he's not saying, well, I'm God. I'm not going to go to earth to be a man. I'm too good for that. He did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, grasped, held on to, to the point that he would not come to be the Son and save men, to fulfill what he came to do and die and give himself a ransom for many. He did not say, well, I'm God. I'm not going to go to earth. That's like a Greek God or a Roman God. It's not our God. Our God, did, our God Jesus, didn't say, I'm too good to go to earth. No, it shows his humility. He is not a tyrant. He's a gracious and merciful God who then left glory, verse 7, emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our Savior, eternal God, with God from all glory. Yet that wasn't something that would he would say, I'm not going to go to be uh, a man and die. No, he emptied himself of that glory and came and dwelled among man. But he never stopped being God. He was true God, true man. And he let that glory come through a little bit on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was always glorious God. But he came in the appearance as just a man. I've said this often and even recently. You could not look at Jesus and tell he was God. He was a man. Like you, like me, we're men. He was a man. He was a true man. But yet, true God, the hypostatic union, true God, true man. This was our Savior. But the point we're making here is that he existed from before creation. He existed in the glory of God. And he left that glory and came to earth. What a wonderful text. He came from the Father and dwelled among men. Is there any doubt that this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied? God? 
mighty God, eternal God, came as a man, dwelled among men, took on the appearance of man, was obedient even to the death on a cross. It's just what Isaiah prophesied. And he prophesied the death in other passages that we might even take up in this study. But here we have the Apostle Paul giving us this insight as to who Jesus was. And he does it again. And I ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're assuming this is written by Paul. Some do not believe it was. Many theologians do. Hebrews chapter 1. Read with me beginning in verse 1. You notice how these texts, many of them are chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1.1, John 1.1, now we have Hebrews 1.1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in many prophets, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Whoa, he made the world? Notice the next. And he is the radiance of his glory the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But we notice two things here that show His eternality. First of all, it says, through whom He made the world. Who existed prior to creation? Only God There was nothing that existed prior to God creating it. And so here the writer to the Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the one who created. So with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we have creation. Which means that Jesus was eternal. Because he had to be there from before the foundations of the world. Here we have Paul We believe the Apostle Paul saying that Jesus was indeed the eternal creator God. Calling him even his son. The last days he has spoken to us in his son. So God the Father, God the Son. Once again, two persons of the Trinity. Now the next thing I want to look at is what he says in verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory. We're going to talk about this a little bit next week. You realize that it is only proper to give glory to God. You are not to give glory to another. But here, glory is attributed to the Son. And it says He is the radiance of His glory. And then it says, the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation. That language there in the Greek is character. You hear the word character in that? The Greek word character. And it comes from the root of the notion of being engraved or a carved image or even the tool that is used to do the engraving, but more so that image itself 
And the point is that when you carve an image like that, it is to be an exact duplication, an exact representation of the image. And it's particularly used when you think of coins. See if I can find a decent-sized coin here. That is the word being used here. It is the image, in this case, of John Kennedy. And I think that's a dollar. The image of John Kennedy, that's the, that's the, the root of this word. And what he's saying is that Christ Jesus is the exact image, the very same reproduction, as it were, of eternal God. Jesus is exactly the same as eternal God the Father. He is eternal God the Son. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said? How long have you been with me and you do not know me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I and the Father are one. How many times did Jesus say things like that? He is the same as the Father. Eternal God. When you see Jesus, you see eternal God. What a great understanding of the One who is our Savior. And as we get into this and understand what He did to actually forgive our sins as He died on the cross, it is then that we find more fully and more clearly and more wonderfully all that the triune God has done to forgive your sins, to forgive my sins. Eternal God left glory became a man and became obedient even to death on the cross. Jesus indeed was the promised Messiah, the divine Son of God. You know, the Jews may have rejected Him and cults may deny Him, but Jesus meets, if I could say that reverently, fulfills all the prophecies regarding Him. Who else could possibly have done that? Who else in the future could possibly do this? Born, laid in a manger in Bethlehem? It's not going to happen again. It's impossible. So the promised Messiah is fulfilled in Christ. He is eternal God. He is mighty God. He is God dwelling among men. Next week we'll look at more evidence beyond the prophecies about Him to seeing Him as He is shown in the New Testament as fulfilling the uh, characteristics fulfilling the attributes of God and spoken of as God. And we'll see just next week some of these passages in in the Scriptures that speak of Him as God in the New Testament, showing us that He is divine. But I hope that today 
you believe his word. His word prophesied that he would be mighty God, eternal God, God dwelling among us. We've seen in the scriptures that Christ fulfills all of those things, that he is indeed Emmanuel with us. And I hope that this is a blessing to your heart as you understand what God did to bring about your forgiveness and your salvation. Just think of how many people don't believe what we just looked at in the scriptures. How many people deny the deity of Christ? I mentioned several religions when we began. There's still millions and millions of people in those religions. Millions and millions of people deny the deity of Christ. How blessed are you if you believe it? If you see it in the scripture? How unique you are. How blessed of God you are that he has opened your eyes to see that Jesus is the divine son of God, the Messiah. Thank God for him opening our hearts and our minds to these truths. We'll see more next week. Let's pray.